who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Welcome YouTube and Stanford communities to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Seminar. Um, brought to you by STVP, the Entrepreneurship Center in the School of Engineering at Stanford, and BASIS, the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, we are so honored to have Ilya Sutskiver here at ETL. Ilya is the co-founder and chief scientist of OpenAI, which aims to build artificial general intelligence for the benefit of all humanity. Um, Elon Musk and others have cited that Ilya is the foundational mind behind the large language model generative pre-trained Transformer 3, or GPT-3, and its public-facing product, ChatGPT. A few product releases have created as much excitement, intrigue, and fear as the release of ChatGPT in November of 2022. Ilya is another example of how the US and the world has been the beneficiary of amazing talent from Israel and Russia. Ilya was born in Russia, and then when he was five, he moved to Israel where he grew up. And he spent um, the first half of undergrad even in Israel. And then he transferred and went to the University of Toronto to complete his bachelor's degree in mathematics. He went on to get a master's and PhD in computer science from the University of Toronto, and then came over here to the farm and did a short stint with Andrew Ng before returning back to Toronto to work under his advisor, Jeffrey Hint's research company, DNN Research. Google then acquired DNN Research shortly thereafter in 2013, and Ilya became a research scientist as part of Google Brain. And in 2015, he left Google to become a director of of the then newly formed OpenAI. It's hard to overestimate the impact that ChatGPT has had on the world since its release in November of last year. And while it feels like ChatGPT came out of nowhere to turn the world on its head, the truth is, There's a deep history of innovation that has led to that moment. And as profound as ChatGPT is, Ilya is no stranger in ushering in discontinuous leaps of innovation in AI. Jeff Hinton has said that Ilya was the main impetus for AlexNet, which was the convolutional neural network in 2012 that is attributed to setting off the deep learning revolution that has led to the moment that we are now in. Um, And of course, it was seven years since the founding of OpenAI that ChatGPT was finally unleashed to the world. Ilyas was elected a fellow of the Royal Society in 2022. He's been named to the MIT Tech Review 35 under 35 list in 2015. He's received the University of Toronto's Innovator of the Year Award in 2014 and the Google Graduate Fellowship from 2010 to 2012. So with that, everybody, please give a virtual warm round of applause and welcome for Ilya to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Seminar. So Ilya, imagine lots of applause and you're always invited back onto the farm physically whenever you are able. So. Ilya, there's so much to discuss, and I know we're going to have so little time, and we have quite a broad range of fluency around uh, the audience in terms of ChatGBT and large language models. I wanted to start off with just a quick question on the technology, which is just the key technology underlying OpenAI and generative AI more broadly is large language models. Can you describe the technology in simple terms? And now that you're at the forefront of the tech, can you share what has surprised you the most about what the tech can do that you didn't anticipate? Yeah. I I can explain what this technology is and why it works. I think the explanation for why it works is both 
simple and extremely beautiful. And it works for the following reason. So you know how the human brain is our best example of intelligence in, in the world. And we know that the human brain is made out of a large number of neurons, a very, very large number of neurons. Neuroscientists have studied neurons for many decades to try to understand how they work precisely. And while the operation of our biological neurons are still mysterious, there's been a pretty bold conjecture made by the earliest deep learning researchers in the 40s. The idea that an artificial neuron, the ones that we have in our artificial neural networks, kind of, sort of, similar to a biological neuron if you squint. So that's, that's, there's an assumption there. And we can just run with this assumption. Now, one of the nice things about these artificial neurons is that you can, they are much simpler and you can study them mathematically. And a very important breakthrough that's take, that was done by the very, very early deep learning pioneers before it was known as deep learning was the discovery of the backpropagation algorithm which is a mathematical equation for how these artificial neural networks should learn. It provides us with a way of taking a large computer and implementing this neural network in code. And then there would be, there is an equation that we can code up that tells us how this neural network should adapt its connections to learn from experience. Now, a lot of additional further progress had to do with understanding just how good and how capable this learning procedure is and what are the exact conditions under which this learning procedure works well. It's, although this is, although we do with computers, it was a little bit of an experimental science, a little bit like biology, where you have something that is, you know, like, 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 a, like a biological experiment a little bit. And so then a lot of the progress with deep learning basically boils down to this. We can build these neural networks in our large computers and we can train them on some data. We can train those large neural networks to do whatever it is that the data asks them to do. Now, the idea of a large language model is that if you have a very large neural network, perhaps one that's now not that far from like these neural networks are pretty large and we train them on the task to guess the next word from a bunch of previous words in text. So this is the idea of a large language model. We train a big neural network to guess the next word from, a from the previous words in text. And you want the neural network to guess the next word as accurately as possible. Now, the thing that happens here is we need to come back to our original assumption that maybe biological neurons aren't that different from artificial neurons. And so if you have a large neural network like this that guesses the next word really well, maybe it will be not that different from what people do when they speak. And that's what you get. So now when you talk to a neural network like this, it's because it has such a great, such an excellent sense of what comes next? What word comes next? It can narrow down. It can't see the future, but
but it can narrow down the possibilities correctly from its understanding. Being able to guess what comes next very, very accurately requires prediction, which is the way you operationalize understanding. What does it mean for a neural network to understand? It's hard to come up with a clean answer, but it is very easy to measure and optimize the network's prediction error of the next word. So we say we want understanding, but we can optimize prediction. And that's what we do. And that's how you get these current large language models. These are neural networks, which are large. They are trained with the backpropagation algorithm, which is very capable. And if you allow yourself to imagine that an artificial neuron is not that different from a biological neuron, then yeah, like our brains are doing, are, are capable of doing a pretty good job at guessing the next word if you pay, if you pay very close attention. So, so if I, I love that. And I just want to make this more concrete. So just to push that analogy further between the biological brain and these neural um, uh, analog physical networks, digital networks, um, if the human, if, if we consider, you know, before it was considered untenable for these machines to learn, now it's a given that they can learn or do this, um, uh, do, do predictive outcomes of what's going to come next. If a human is at 1x learning, and you have the visibility into the most recent chat GBT models, what would you put the most recent chat GBT model as a ratio of where the humans are at? So if humans are at 1x, what's chat GPT at? You know, it's a bit hard to make direct comparisons between our artificial neural networks and people, mm -hmm. because at present, people are able to learn more from a lot less data. Mm -hmm. This is why these neural networks like ChatGPT are trained on so much data to compensate for their initial slow learning ability. You know, as we train these neural networks and we make them better, faster learning abilities start to emerge. But overall, overall, it is the case that we are, we are quite different. The way people learn is quite different from the way these neural networks learn. Like one example might be, you know, these neural networks, they are, you know, solidly good at math or programming but like the amount of math books they needed to get, let's say, good at something like calculus is very high. Whereas a person would need a fairly, you know, two textbooks and maybe 200 exercises and you're pretty, pretty much good to go. So there is- But just still... to get an order of magnitude sense, if you relax the data constraint, so if you let the machine consume as much data as it needs, do you think it's operating at like one-tenth of a human right now or- you know, it's quite hard to answer that question still. And let me tell you why I hesitate to get, like, I think that any figure like this will be misleading. And I want to explain why. Like, because right now, any such neural network is obviously very superhuman when it comes to the breadth of its knowledge and to the very large number of skills that these neural networks have. For example, they're very good at poetry and they're very, they know, like, they can talk eloquently about any topic pretty much, and they can talk about historical events and lots of things like this. On the other hand, on the other hand, people can go deep and they do go deep. So you may have an expert, like someone who understands something very deeply, 
despite having read only a small amount of documents, let's say, on the topic. So because of this difference, I really hesitate to answer the question in terms of, oh yeah, it's like some some number between zero and one. But do you think there is a singularity point where the machines will surpass the humans in terms of the pace of learning and adaption? Yes. Where, yeah, and when do you think that point will occur? I don't know. I don't know when it will occur. I think some additional advances will need to will will happen, but you know, I absolutely would not bet against this point occurring at some at some point. Can you give me a range? Is it is some point next month? Is it yeah. next year? You know, I think it's like the, the the uncertainty on these things is quite high because these advances. I can imagine it can take in quite a while. I can imagine it can take in a disappointingly long time. I can also imagine it's taking, you know, some number of years, but it's okay, just very, fine. it's very hard to give a calibrated answer. And I, and I know there's lots to push forward. So I'm going to ask one more question, then move on to some of the other issues. But, um, I know I read that when you were a child, you were disturbed by the notion of consciousness. Um, and I wasn't sure what that what that word meant disturbed. But I'm curious, do you view consciousness or sentience or self-awareness as an extenuation of learning? Do you think that that is something that also is an inevitability that will happen or not? Yeah, I mean, on the consciousness questions, like, yeah, I was as a, as a child, I would like, you know, look into my at my hand and I would be like, how can it be that this is my hand that I get to see it? Like I, something of this nature, I don't know how to explain it much better. So that's been something I was curious about. You know, it's, it's tricky with consciousness because how do you define it? It's something that eluded definition for a long time. And how can you test it in a system? Maybe there is a system which acts perfectly right, but um, per per perfectly the way you'd expect um, a conscious system would act, yet maybe it won't be conscious for some reason. I do think there is a si very simple way to, there is, there is an experiment which we could run on an AI system, which we can't run on, which we can't run uh, just yet, but maybe in like the future point when the AI learns very, very quickly from less, from less data, we could do the following experiment very carefully <clears throat> we'd very carefully curate the data such that we never ever mention anything about consciousness we would only say you know here is here is a ball and here's a castle and here is like a little toy like we would imagine imagine you'd have data of this sort and it would be very controlled maybe we'd have some number of years worth of this kind of training data maybe it would be maybe such an ai system would be interacting with a lot of different teachers learning from them but all very carefully you never ever mention consciousness you don't talk about people don't talk about anything except for the most surface level notions of their experience and then at some point you sit down this ai and you say okay i want to tell you about consciousness it's the thing that's a little bit not well understood people disagree about it but that's how they describe it and imagine if the ai then goes and says oh my god i've been feeling the same thing, but I didn't know how to articulate it. That would be, okay, that would be definitely uh, something to think about. It's like if the AI was just trained on very mundane data around objects and 
going from place to place or maybe, you know, something like this from a very narrow set of concepts. We would never, ever mention that. And yet if it could somehow eloquently and correctly talk about it in a way that we would recognize, that would be convincing. And do you think of it as, a, some, as, as consciousness as something of degree or is it something more binary? Uh, I think it's something that's more a matter of degree. I think that, I think that like, you know, let's say if a person is very tired, extremely tired and maybe drunk, then perhaps at that, when, when someone is in that state, then maybe their consciousness is already reduced to some degree. I can imagine that animals have a more reduced form of consciousness. If you imagine going from, you know, large primates, maybe dogs, cats, and then eventually you get mice, you might get an insect. Like, feels like, I would say it's pretty continuous, yeah. Okay. I want to move on, even though I could, I would love to keep asking more questions along the lines of the technology, but I want to move on to talking about the mission of OpenAI and, and how you perceive or any issues around ethics and your role as chief science officer, how ethics informs, if at all, how you think about your role. Um, and so let me just lay a couple foundation points out and then have you speak. Um, as you know, OpenAI's mission is to ensure the art that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. And it started off as a nonprofit and open sourced, and it is now a for-profit and closed sourced and with a close relationship with Microsoft. And Elon Musk, who I believe recruited you to originally join OpenAI and gave $100 million when it was a nonprofit, has says that the original vision was to create a counterweight to Google uh, and the corporate world. And he didn't want to have a world in which AI, which is has, which he perceives and others can have an existential threat to humanity to be solely in the holds of, of, of a corporate, of a for-profit. Um, and now OpenAI is neither open nor exclusively a nonprofit. It's also a for-profit with close ties to Microsoft. And it looks like the world may be headed towards um, a private duopoly between Microsoft and Google. Can you shed light on the calculus to shift from a for-profit to a nonprofit? And did you weigh in the ethics of that decision? And do ethics play a role in how you conceive of your role as the chief science officer? Or do you view it more as something that somebody else should handle and you are mainly just tasked with pushing the technology forward? Yeah, so this question has many parts. Let me yeah. Let me let me think about the best way to, to to approach it. So there are several parts. There is the there is the question around open source versus closed source. There is a question around non-profit versus for-profit and the connection with Microsoft. And how to see that in the context of Elon Musk's recent comments. And then the question about how I see my role in this. Maybe I'll start with that because I think that's easier. Okay. So I feel the way I see my role, I feel a lot, I, I feel direct responsibility for what OpenAI does, even though I, my role is primarily around advancing the science. 
It is still the case. I'm one of the founders of the company. And ultimately, I care a lot about OpenAI's overall impact. Now, I want to go, so with this context, I want to go and talk about the open source versus closed source and the non-profit versus for-profit. And I want to start with the open source versus closed source because I think that, you know, the challenge with AI is that AI is so all-encompassing and it comes with many different challenges. It comes with many, many different dangers which come into conflict with each other. And I think the open source versus closed source is a great example of that. Why is it desirable? Or let me put it this way. What are some reasons for which it is desirable to open source AI? The answer there would be to prevent concentration of power in the hands of those who are building the AI. So if you are in a world where, let's say, there is only a small number of companies you might, that control this very powerful technology, you might say this is an undesirable world and that AI should be open and that anyone could use the AI. This is the argument for open source. But this argument, you know, of course, you know, to state the obvious, there are near-term uh, commercial incentives against open source. But there is another longer-term argument against open sourcing as well, which is if we believe, if one believes that eventually AI is going to be unbelievably powerful, if we get to a point where your AI is so powerful where you can just tell it, hey, can you autonomously create a biological, like, I don't know, a biological research lab? Autonomously. Do all the paperwork, rent the space, hire the technicians, aggregate the experiments, do all this autonomously. Like that starts to get incredible. That starts to get like mind-bendingly powerful. Should this be open sourced also? So my position on the open source question is that I think that <clears throat> I think that there is a maybe a level of capability. You can think about these neural networks in terms of capability. How capable they are, how smart they are, how much, how many, how much, how much can they do? When the capability is on the lower end, I think open sourcing is a great thing. But at some point, and you know, there can be debate about where the point is. But I would say that at some point, the capability will become so vast that it will be obviously irresponsible to open source models. And was that the driver behind closed sourcing it? Or was it driven by a, a, a devil's compact or business necessity to get cash in uh, from Microsoft or others to support the viability of the business? Was the decision-making to close it down actually driven by that line of reasoning or was it driven by more so financial So, So the way I'd articulate it, you know, my view is that the current level of capability is still not that high where it will be the safety consideration that will drive the close close sourcing the model, the, this kind of this kind of research. Okay. So, in other words, a claim that it goes in phases. Right now, it is indeed the competitive phase. 
But I claim that as the capabilities of these models keep increasing, there will come a day where it will be the safety consideration that will be the obvious and immediate driver to not open source these models. So this is the open source versus closed source. But your question had an, but your question had another part, which is non-profit versus for-profit. And we can talk about that also. You know, indeed, it would be preferable in a certain meaningful sense if OpenAI could just be a, for, a non-profit from now until the mission of OpenAI is complete. However, one of the things that's worth pointing out is the very significant cost of these data centers. I'm sure you're reading about various AI startups and the amount of money they are raising, the great majority of which goes to the cloud providers. Why is that? Well, the reason so much money is needed is because this is the nature of these large neural networks. They need the compute. End of story. You can see something like this. It's all, you can see a divide that's now happening between academia and the AI companies. So for a long time, for many decades, cutting edge research in AI took place in academic departments, in universities. That kept being the case up until the mid 2010s. But at some point when the complexity and the cost of these projects started to get very large, it no longer remained possible for universities to be competitive. And now universities need a university research in AI needs to find some other way in which to contribute. Those ways exist. They're just different from the way they're used to and different from the way the companies are contributing right now. Now, with this context, you're saying, okay, the thing about nonprofit and nonprofit is that people who give money to a nonprofit never get to see any, any of it back. It is a real donation. And believe it or not, it is quite a bit harder to convince people to give money to a nonprofit. And so we, so, so we think, what's, what's the solution there? Or what is a good course of action? So we came up with an idea that, to my knowledge, is unique in all corporate structures in the world. The OpenAI corporate structure is absolutely unique. OpenAI is not a for-profit company. It is a capped profit company. And I'd like to explain what that means. What that means is that equity in OpenAI can be better seen as a bond rather than equity in a normal company. The main feature of a bond is that once it's paid out, it's gone. So in other words, OpenAI has a finite obligation to its investors, as opposed to an infinite obligation to that normal companies have. And does that include the founders? Do the founders have equity in OpenAI? So Sam Altman does not have equity, but the other founders do. And is it capped or is it unlimited? It is capped. And how does that cap? Is that capped? Uh, because the, the founders, I presume, didn't buy in unless it's capped at the nominal share value. Um, I'm not sure I understand the question precisely, but well, what I can say, like yeah. what, what, what I, I can answer the part which I do understand, which okay. is like, 
there is certainly like it is there are it is a different it is different from normal startup equity but there are some similarities as well where the earlier you join the company the higher the cap is because then the larger cap is needed to attract the initial investors as the company continues to succeed the cap decreases and why is that important it's important because it means that the company when once when once all the obligation to investors and employees are paid out, OpenAI becomes a non-profit again. And you can say, this is totally crazy. What are you talking about? Like, it's not going to change anything. But it's worth considering what we expect. Like, it's worth looking at what we think AI will be. I mean, we can look at what AI is today. And I think it is not at all inconceivable for OpenAI to achieve its, to pay out its obligation to the investors and their employees, become a non-profit at around the time when perhaps the computers will become so capable, where the economic disruption will be very big, where this transition will be very beneficial. So this is the answer on the capped profit versus non-profit. There was a last part to your question. I know I'm speaking for a while, but the question had many parts. The last part of your question is the Microsoft relationship. And so here, the thing that's very fortunate is that Microsoft is a, they're thinking about these questions the right way. They understand the potential and the gravity of AGI. And so, for example, on the on all the investor documents that any investor in OpenAI has signed, and by the way, Microsoft is an investor into OpenAI, which is a very different relationship from the Google DeepMind. Any anyone who signed any document, any investment document, there is a a purple rectangle at the top of the investment document, which says that the fiduciary duty of OpenAI is to the OpenAI mission which means that you run the risk of potentially losing all your money if the mission comes in conflict. So this is something that yeah. all the investors have signed. And let me just make this clear for everybody because Google, Google acquired DeepMind. So DeepMind was just an asset inside of Google, but beholden to Google. You're making the distinction that with OpenAI, Microsoft is an investor and so beholden to this fiduciary duty for the mission of OpenAI, which is held by the nonprofit which is a is is a, a a a GP or an LP in the um in in the for profit, um, okay, understood. Yeah, so, some, so, something like this. You know, I am. You know, there are people. I can't tell you the precise details. Yeah. But so, but this is the general picture. And you know, some have claimed though now, especially it, uh, um, Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple, and Elon Musk have famously signed this very public petition, saying that the point of no return is already passed, or we're approaching it, where it's going to be impossible to rein in AI and its and its its repercussions if we don't halt it now. And they've called for halting AI. Um, I'm curious. On you are a world citizen, Ilya. You were born in Russia. You were raised in Israel. You're Canadian, um, and I'm and and it's OpenAI's response to that public petition was um, 
I know Sam basically said that, you know, this wasn't the right way to go about doing that. But also in parallel, Sam is on a world tour with many countries that also can be antagonistic towards the West. Are there any citizen obligations, ethical obligations that you think also overweigh your your technological obligations when it comes to spreading the technology around the world right now through OpenAI? Do you think that should be beholden to a regulation or some oversight? Let me think. Once again, the question had a number of parts and I'd like it to- It did, I apologize. I'm trying to give you the, so you can respond however you want to on that. I know we're gonna come out of off of time. So I just wanna give you the mic and just share everything that's on my mind and you can decide how you wanna handle it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, you know, it is true that AI is going to become truly extremely powerful and truly extremely transformative. And I do think that we will want to move to a world with sensible government regulations. And there, you know, there are several dimensions to it. We want to be in a world where there are clear rules about, for example, training more powerful neural networks. We want there to be some kind of careful evaluation, careful prediction of these, of what we expect these neural networks, of what they can do today, and of what we expect them to be able to do, let's say, in a year from now, or by the time they finish training. I think all these things will be very necessary in order to, like, rational, like, rationally, I wouldn't use the word slow down the progress. I would use the term, you want to make it so that the progress is sensible, so that with each step, we've done the homework and indeed we can make a credible story that, okay, the neural network, the system that we've trained, it has, we are doing this and here are all the steps and it's been verified or certified. I think that is the world that we are headed to, which I think is correct. And as for the citizen obligation, I feel like I mean, I'll answer it like this. Like I think I think like there, there are there are two answers to it. So obviously, you know, I live I live in the United States and I really like it here and I want and I want this place to flourish as much as possible care about that. I think that, of course, there will be lots of, but the world is much more than just the US. And I think that these are the kind of questions which I feel a little bit, let's say, outside of my expertise, how these between country relationships work out. But I'm sure there will be lots of discussions there as well. Yeah. Um, can I turn a little bit towards strategy? Um, I'm curious for you guys internally, what metrics do you track as your North Star? What are the most sacred KPIs that you use to measure OpenAI's success right now? The most sacred KPIs. You know, I think this is also the kind of question where maybe different people will give you different answers. 
But I would say I would say that there are, if I were to really narrow it down, I would say that there are there is a couple of really important KPI of really important dimensions of progress. One is undeniably the technical progress. Are we doing good research? Do we understand our systems better? Are we able to train them better? Can we control them better? I mean, is our is our is our research plan being executed well? Is our safety plan being executed well? How happy are we with it? I would say this would be my description of the primary KPI, which is do a good job of the technology. Then there is, of course, stuff around the product, but which I think is cool. But I would say that it is really the core technology, which is the heart of OpenAI. The technology, its development, and, and its control, its steering. And, and do you view, um, right now, ChatGBT is a destination. Do you view OpenAI in the future being a destination that people go to, um, like Google? Or will it be powering other applications and be the back end or be, be you know, used as part of the back end infrastructure? Um, is it a destination or is it going to be more behind the scenes um, in, in five to 10 years? Yeah, well, I mean, things change so fast. I, I cannot make any claims about five to 10 years in terms of the correct shape of the product. I imagine a little bit of both perhaps, but this kind of question, I mean, I think it remains to be seen. I think there are, I think this stuff is still so new. Okay. I'm going to ask one more question. I'm going to jump to the student questions. If you were a student at Stanford today, interested in AI, if you were, you know, somebody who wants to be Ilya, um, what would you focus your time? And another second question on this, if you're also interested in entrepreneurship, um, where would you, what would you, what advice would you give for a Stanford undergrad engineer that's interested in AI and entrepreneurship? So I think on the first one, It's always hard to give generic advice like this. Yeah. But I can still provide some generic advice nonetheless. And I think it's something like it it is generally a good idea to lean into one's unique predispositions. You know, every you know, why if you think if you look if you think about the set of, let's say, inclinations or skills or talents that the person might have, the combination is pretty rare. So leaning into that is a very good idea, no matter which direction you choose to go, look to go in. And then on the AI research, like I would say, I would say that there, you know, I could say something, but even but there, especially, you want to lean into your own ideas and really ask yourself, what can you, is, is there something that's totally obvious to you that makes you go, why is everyone else not getting it? If you feel like this, that's a good sign. It means that you might be able, that, that you, you, you want to lean into that and explore it and see if your instinct is true or not. It may not be true. But you know, my, my advisor, Jeff Hinton, 
says this thing which I really like. He says, you should trust your intuition because if your intuition is good, you go really far. And if it's not good, then there's nothing you can do. <laughs> and as far as entrepreneurship is concerned, I feel like this is a place where the unique perspective is even more valuable or maybe equally it's because it's maybe, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll explain why I think it's more valuable than in research. Well, in research, it's very valuable too, but in entrepreneurship, like you need to like almost pull from your unique life experience where you say, okay, I see this thing. I see this technology. I see some like take a very, very broad view and see if you can hone in on something and then actually just go for it. So that would, that would be the conclusion of my generic advice. Okay, which is great. It's also great. I'm going to move on to the student question. So one of the most upvoted questions is, how do you see the field of deep learning evolving in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. Let's see. You know, I expect deep learning to continue to make progress. I, I expect that, you know, there was a period of time where a lot of progress came from scaling. And you see, we saw that most in the most pronounced way in going from GPT-1 to GPT-3. But things will change a little bit. The reason, the, reason that, the reason that progress in scaling was so rapid is because people had all these data centers, which they weren't using for a single training run. So by simply reallocating existing resources, you could make a lot of progress. And it doesn't take that long necessarily to reallocate existing resources. You just need to, you know, someone just needs to decide to do so. It is different now because the training runs are very big and the scaling is not going to be progressing as fast as it used to be because building data centers takes time. But at the same time, I expect deep learning to continue to make progress in art from other places. The deep learning stack is quite deep and I expect that there will be improvements in many layers of the stack. And together, they will still lead to progress being very robust. And so if I had to guess, I'd imagine that there would be maybe, I'm certain we will discover new properties which are currently unknown of deep learning, and those properties will be utilized. And I fully expect that the systems of five to 10 years from now will be much, much better than the ones they are we have right now. But exactly how it's going to look like, I think, I think it's a bit harder to answer. It's a bit like it's because the improvements that there is there will be maybe a small number of big improvements and also a large number of small improvements, all integrated into a large complex engineering artifact. And can I ask your, you know, your co-founder Sam Altman has said that we've reached the limits of what we can achieve by scaling to larger language models. Is do you agree? Um, and if so, you know, what, then what is the next innovation frontier that you're focusing on? If that's the case? Yeah. So I think maybe, I don't remember, I don't know exactly what he said, but maybe he meant something like that the age of easy scaling has ended or something like this. Like, of course, of course, the larger neural nets will be better, but it's, it will be a lot of effort and cost to do them. But I think there will be lots of different frontiers. And actually, to the question of how can one contribute in deep learning, identifying such a frontier 
perhaps one that's been missed by others is very fruitful. And is it, can I go even just deeper on that? Because I think there is this debate about vertical focus versus general, um, uh, generalist training, you know, is it better? Do you think the, there's better performance that can be achieved in particular domains such as law or medicine by training with special data sets? Or is it likely that generalist training with all available data will be more beneficial? So, like at some point, we should absolutely expect specialist training to make a huge impact. But the reason we do the generalist training is just so that we can even reach the point where, just so that we can reach the point where the neural network can even understand the questions that we are asking. And only when it has a very robust understanding, only then we can go into specialist training and really benefit from it. So yeah, I mean, I think all these, I think these are all fruitful directions. But you don't think, when do you think we'll be at that point when specialist training is the thing to focus on? I mean, you know, like if you look at people who do open source work, people who work with open, open source models, they do a fair bit of this kind of specialist training because they have a fairly underpowered model and they try to get any ounce of performance they can out of it. Mm -hmm. So I would say that this is an example. I'd say that this is an example of it happening. Like it's already happening to some degree. It's not a binary. It's a, you, you might want to think of it as of a, like a, a continuum, a spectrum. But do you think that the competitive, do you think that the winning advantage is going to be having these proprietary data sets or is it going to be having a much high, higher performance, large language model um, when it comes to these ver applications of AI into verticals? So I think it may be productive to think about the, about an AI like this as a combination of multiple factors where each factor makes a, a contribution. Mm -hmm. And is it better to have um, special data which helps you make your AI better in a particular set of tasks? Of course. Is it better to have a more capable base model? Of course, from the perspective of the task. So maybe this is the, the answer. It's not an either or. I'm going to move down to the other questions. Um, there's a question on what was the cost of training and developing GPT-3 slash 4? Yeah. So, you know, for, for obvious reasons, I can't comment on that. Okay. Um, but there, I think there is, a you know, I think even from our research community, there's a strong desire to be able to get access to um, uh to, to different aspects of OpenAI's um, uh, technology. And are there any plans for releasing it to researchers or to other startups to encourage more competition and innovation? Um, some of the requests that I've heard are unfettered interactions without safeguards to understand the model's performance, model specifications, including details on how it was trained and access to the model itself, i.e. the trained parameters. Do you want to comment on any of that? Yeah, I mean, I think... Like it's related to our earlier question about open yeah. versus closed. I think that there are some intermediate approaches which can be very fruitful. For example, model access and various combinations of that can be very, very productive because these neural networks already have such a large and complicated surface area of behavior. And 
and studying that alone can be extremely interesting. Like we have an academic access program, we, we, we provide various forms of access to the models. And in fact, plenty of academic research labs do study them in this way. So I think this kind of approach is viable and is something that we could, that we are doing. I know we're coming up on time. I want to just end with just one final question, which is, can you just share any unintuitive but compelling use cases for how you love to use ChatGBT that others may not know about? Hmm. So, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't say that it's unknown, but I, I really enjoy its poem writing ability. It can write poems, it can rap, it can, it can be, it can be, it can be pretty amusing. And do you guys use it? Is it, is it an integrated part of the, um, of, of teamwork at open? I assume it is, but I'm curious, do you have any insights on how it changes dynamics with teams when you have AI? deeply integrated into, you know, a human team and how they're working and any insights into to what we may not know, but that will come. I would say, I would say to today, the best way to describe the impact is that everyone is a little bit more productive. People are a little bit more on top of things. I wouldn't say that right now there is a dramatic impact on dynamics, which I can say, oh yeah, the dynamics have shifted in this pronounced way. I'm curious if it depersonalizes conversations because it's the AI bot, or maybe it. it may, but maybe we're not at that point yet where it's becoming. I, I, that I definitely, I I don't think that's the case, and I predict that will not be the case, but we'll see. Well, thank you, Ilya, for a fascinating discussion. Time is always too short. You're always invited back to the farm. Um, we'd love to have you either virtually or in person. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, to our audience, thank you for tuning in for this session of the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series. Next week, we're going to be joined by the executive chairman and co-founder of Okta, Frederick Karist. And you can find that event and other future events in this ETL series on our Stanford eCorner YouTube channel. And you'll find even more of the videos, podcasts, and articles about entrepreneurship and innovation at Stanford eCorner. That's eCorner.stanford.edu. And as always, thank you for tuning in to ETL. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.